This is God's word. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant of law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God of grace, as we enter into a space that uh, um, is full of words that where we're addressing you and looking to you and in our hearts are longing to um, believe some of the stuff that are in these songs and in this uh, Bible that we've referred to a lot today, but maybe we're just not there yet, and uh, we can't believe yet. We've got barriers, questions, um, doubts, or experiences that stand in the way. And some of us have, are in other places. Maybe we're um, full of great joy. You've answered prayers. Um, you seem real in a way we never thought possible. And others of us, uh, you were once uh, so vibrant to our outlook on life. You were so central to it, and our faith was vibrant. And and we, we're starting to wonder: was that was I fooling myself? Is that ever going to be possible again? Um, or was that just some kind of emotional high that I have to get over? And as we come from all these different kinds of places. Uh, the truth is, um, what we all need most is to believe what's central to this story of the Bible, that you keep approaching us in our mess, in our fragmentation, in our brokenness. You approach us and move towards us with grace, where you take on what we deserve so that we can be in a place of privilege in a relationship with you. We have a terrible time believing that, so would you help us? Would you join us now and speak to us now in such a way that that grace teaches us and transforms our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you were lucky enough to have the experience as a child where, you know, this kind of idyllic picture of being in a car with a family and you're going on a trip 
and you're saying, are we there yet? Um, You know, I remember that, and now I'm at the point where my kids are saying it to me. Um, I remember my parents had this incredibly tricky maneuver that they pulled on us, is that whenever we'd ask that question, they'd say, getting closer. And uh, I remember being on the younger end of the spectrum and actually saying, oh boy, getting closer. I was kind of the naive youngest one in the family. Um, when my older brother or sister would say, your nose is on fire, Marky, then I'd like go run to the mirror and check repeatedly. So, um, so I was kind of naive. We're getting closer. This is good. Then I got older and it became infuriating. Um, what happens though is that, um, you know, most of us, I'm looking around, most of us, we're not kids anymore or we're at the age where we're, we kind of tell ourselves, I think I'm supposed to feel like not a kid anymore. I think I'm supposed to be sort of a grown up. And yet you stop and you realize, you know what? Something feels similar. Uh, I still kind of feel like this, this trip that life has taken me on. Uh, I'm finding that I'm not behind the wheel like I thought I would be as much. And I'm in a place where I'm starting to say, I thought we'd be there by now. And pretty quickly you start to realize life brings us through times that feel like the wilderness. You know, this thing that I'm going through is going on too long. Or it's not going on long enough. Or it's going to be taken from me. I'm not happy. I feel like I'm not being fulfilled. Uh, I'm confused. Perpetually confused. I'm dissatisfied. It's the wilderness. It's the trip through the desert that we end up going through and... And we need help. We need, uh, because whether, you know, some of you aren't there right now, but maybe you've been through it or coming up, you're going to go through the wilderness. Life is full of wilderness times. How do you navigate it? How do you understand what's happening? You know, where do you point the finger? Who do you call out to? What, how do you understand what's happening and how you're supposed to navigate it when you don't feel like you're behind the wheel? And you're at the, the mercy of this wilderness time that who knows how long it's going to go. What are you supposed to do? The Bible actually provides us a really um, unique perspective on the wilderness. The Bible views the wilderness as a crucial time for spiritual growth. The Bible is, is, I don't know that you'll get anywhere else some of the things that you'll hear today through this message about how to get through the wilderness in a way that really forms you and grows your faith. Some of the stuff, some of the perspective of the Bible on your wilderness times, you just won't find anywhere else. It's unique. So we're going to look through this story under... Two basic headings in terms of our wilderness. How do we, how do we grow through the wilderness? The headings are um, our wilderness problem and God's wilderness agenda. Very simple. Our wilderness problem, God's wilderness agenda. And we do have a problem with the wilderness. We have a problem uh, finding our lives in a place of the wilderness because in many ways... <laughs> We're some of the biggest spoiled brats that ever lived on the face of the planet throughout history of all times, right? Louis C.K., one of my favorite comedians, has a little piece on this about where he says, you know, I hate people, but, you know, we're the kind of people we complain about, you know, our flight. You know, we're complaining about our flight. You know, I had to sit on the tarmac for 40 minutes. And this, you know, his, his, his way of handling this is, and then what did you do? Did you fly through the air on a plane? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Did you sit in a chair in the sky? 
yeah, but the internet, you know, the wireless was going out. Um, you know, so he's got a great way of bringing that out. And Robert Hughes is this, um, this writer who wrote a book um, in the 90s called uh, The Culture of Complaint with an ominous subtitle of The Fraying of America. And so it's all about, you know, how there's this culture of complaint. And his main point is that Americans have become what he calls precious whiners, sullen and irresponsible, pursuing an all-pervasive claim to victimhood. And he notes that the shifts this has produced may be seen everywhere. I know none of you, right, but we're in a culture of people like that, right? Not you. I'm not talking about anyone here. And basically what it means is that when you get into the story and you get to verse 3, you can relate. All of us, every single one of us can relate and understand when when we see that they come, they're grumbling to Moses, the Israelites, and they come to him and they say, they come to him and Aaron and they say, notice how it starts, if only, right, if only we're experts that if only, if only, if only uh, I could find a spouse, if only I could get the kind of job I imagined I would get when I put all this money and time into this schooling, if only, if only I liked my coworkers a little more, if only I liked my spouse a little more, if only, um, I don't know, if only I had more friends, if only um, I had less pain in relationships, if only I was born into a different family. Sometimes it gets kind of intense, our if-only statements. If only, if only, if only my circumstances would just change in this one area, we say. And I, I, so I know how this starts to feel. It feels like, okay, okay, I get it, Mark. This is going to be a sermon about don't complain, don't be whiners. So let me just, let me just stop, and um, that's not exactly where we're going. And let me, let me prove it by saying that there's something absolutely legitimate about the fact that at this juncture in the story for the Israelites, and for you if you're going through the wilderness right now, at this juncture it's totally appropriate to, be, to kind of be making some noise, to be calling something out, to be grasping at something because there's legitimate hunger. They really are in a wasteland. They're in that kind of place, if you know Psalm 63, a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's where they are. That's, and, and, you know, we get in this place. It's legitimate to start to, to, to rumble and make some noise a little bit. <clears throat> but then that's where kind of where our problem becomes really, really apparent is that we are actually really terrible at diagnosing our need at really understanding and grasping and parsing out what is the hunger and how could it be fixed. We have all these if-only statements. And you start to realize we don't necessarily finish the sentence very well because look at how the Israelites finish it. If only, what do they say? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this assembly to death. And you can see, I mean, uh, most of us know, a lot of you know kind of the whole story. Most of us get a sense as we're reading this that they don't end up back in Egypt, and that if they did, they'd be a lot worse off. You can get it, you, you have a sense intuitively, even if you don't know the story, that they're not quite diagnosing the solution, you know, appropriately. Um, so then the issue becomes, I think we do 
the same thing. I think we've got to start to question or at least ask yourself, is my if-only statement, am I certain that I'm spot on with that, that I, I am the one who knows how to finish that sentence? Um, Charles Duhigg is a psychologist and author who wrote this book um, called, this is real recent, it came out, The Power of Habit. And I didn't bring the exact quote, but I'll just kind of paraphrase what I heard him say in an interview. Um, basically, he said, our problem in terms of cravings and desire is that we often don't actually make accurate assessments about what we are craving. We don't really know underneath the surface what we're really craving when we say, I want that. Or when we say, I got this habit and it must be because I want this and so I keep going there for that. We actually, under the surface, there's things going on. There's cravings, there's desires, there's needs that we're sort of out of touch with on a day-to-day basis. And you see that in the Israelites. And a lot of times, basically what it comes down to, I think for a lot of you and for me, is we end up in in our wilderness experiences. This is usually option number one that we go for. We try to feed ourselves. We try to make our own bread. That's, a, that's usually option number one. You don't even have to be like a type A uh, to go this route. Dan Allender, he's a writer, a Christian writer and psychologist. He says, I've tried. I've tried to be the father to my own orphaned loneliness. I've tried to be the son to my own estranged confusion. I've tried to be the Holy Spirit to my widowed shame. I've fed myself bread. Much of it legitimate and good. Yet it could not salve the wound or fill the emptiness. So ask yourself, that, that, might you also have the same wilderness problem that the Israelites had? Um, ask yourself, do I know for sure what I need right now? Do you really? Do you know? Are you certain that you're the one with the answer to that question? Or maybe does your if-only statement, maybe is it a little off, maybe it's even off to the degree of I wish I were back enslaved in Egypt kind of wrong. Maybe it's that far off. At least consider the option. Because then you'll be ready to understand the second point, which is God's wilderness agenda. And his agenda is this. I'll give you the answer up front. God's wilderness agenda is basically to, to have his word and instruction becomes sweet to you. God puts us in the wilderness. God brings us through times of wilderness as a way of getting us into training, in a sense, to put you into training in such a way that through this experience, you're actually being trained to taste Him and His Word and His instruction and His leadership in your life as sweet. Because often we don't think of it that way. We think of what we have going in our plans. That looks pretty sweet to us. So he's kind of repro- he's using the wilderness to reprogram, to train us for, so that his word becomes sweet. And the truth is, sometimes we need the wilderness because you don't know that God is all you need sometimes until God is all you have. And he uses the wilderness to get at that and to start to strip away some of the stuff that we thought, oh, that's sweet. And it turns out he's like stripping away the cotton candy in our lives. And we said, actually, that was, a, that was kind of oversweet and it didn't last. And my life was filled with it. God used the wilderness to do that kind of stuff. And the reason I know that is because 
the great companion book to the book of Exodus is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the wilderness is explained like this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Um, This passage is basically asking you to incorporate something into your view of life that I think I want to plead with you to incorporate into your life as well. The idea that in your wilderness, God might be having an agenda with you such that it's safe to say he's the one making you hungry. He's the one even causing you to get to that point of saying, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And he says, good, finally you know it. That's what I wanted. I'm doing that to you. I'm putting you in a situation where you say, I'm hungry. Um, Because the wilderness then, the wilderness question uh, rises to the surface. Can you then, if you believe that that's possible, can you yield to the possibility that God is bringing you through a series of circumstances that you're going to come out the other end of it saying, he is sweet. His leadership in my life is sweet. And you know this if you've been through I know that some of you could, would say this. And, and if you haven't, then just consider that if you go, you're going through the wilderness that you're going to look back at that time and you're going to say, okay, I, I wouldn't necessarily ask for that to happen again tomorrow. <laughs> But I would never ask that it be removed from my story because there is where God got serious. There's where God became real. There's where I knew I needed God and I needed his leadership in my life. That's what the wilderness does. It breaks us from sort of a vending machine view of God, you know. Come on, God, I put in my quarters. Cough up already the thing I want, the thing I put on order, right, God? Come on, where are you? You know, you owe me, right? We're often bringing a sense of God entitlement. God owes us something. Come on, I I put a little money in the church thing. I volunteered a little bit. You know, I helped out an old lady across the street. Come on, God, you owe me, right? Cough up the better job. Cough up the better circumstances in my family. Cough up the healing in you know, someone's life who I just don't want to lose. Cough this up. Cough it up, God. And God often uses the wilderness to transition us and to bring us to a point of not complaining to God, but really having the confidence to come to God the right way, to come to God with our questions. You know, finally you believe maybe God has put me here. Maybe God is at work in this. Okay, then I got a lot of questions. That's legitimate. It's very legitimate to come to God in the wilderness and say, okay, what? <laughs> what? What are you doing? What do you want me to do? What's going on? What am I supposed to learn from this? Now you're in a very healthy place. So you move sort of from this, what our kind of gut nature response is, is complaint to crying out. I love Psalm 107. I love the whole Psalm book, all 150 Psalms. I just keep finding more and more um, how they shape the life of prayer. They, they give you a language of how to pray in different circumstances. What's, how do I interact with God? How does he see this interaction? How should I view it? And in Psalm 107, several different kind of journeys, different kinds of people's stories are laid out, different frameworks. 
um, starting by saying, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And then there's like some different versions. And the first version goes like this. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord. Catch that? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for humankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. God uses the wilderness to get us into that kind of place where we cry out honestly amidst our trouble. And he starts to make his leading us out of it. That starts to be sweet. That's the sweet spot. God, lead me out. Um, And so let me just hit, I mean, this is sort of like the closing part, but let me just hit three things from this text in terms of how, because there's some mechanisms here. How does God start to make his leadership and his word in our life sweet? So the first one is that he does it on a daily basis. You look at verse 4, and it's kind of interesting. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, each day, and gather enough for that day. Sounds kind of cumbersome. Sounds like a lot of work. Come on, God, why not once a month kind of get it over with? Wouldn't that be more efficient? No, each day. And you know this is hard for us. This is very difficult for us. Back to that kind of our culture and our impatience. And we want to arrive at a place now. We want results right now. We want a week's worth. We, want to, we don't want it to work day by day with a sort of uncertainty and imperfection that that sort of creates in our outlook. And yet that's how God works. That's how he becomes sweet to us on a daily basis, one step at a time. I know it's true because there's this very noteworthy theologian who agrees with the Bible on this. His name is Bono. Um, and he says, I, lo- I just love this quote. He says, I have heard of people having life-changing, miraculous turnarounds. People set free from addiction after a single prayer. Relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that, I was lost, I am found. It is probably more accurate to say I was really lost I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life. The slow reworking and rebooting of a computer at regular intervals. Reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years though and it is not over yet. That's how God works. And of course, what do we want? We want to store up. We want to get a a week at a time. But what happens is, just like what happens in the story, it spoils. When you kind of, out of anxiety and impatience, you want to get ahead of God and you don't want to wait for God. And so you grab and you look and you try to get ahead and you try to carve it all out and and it kind of just spoils and gets maggoty just like the the way it happened for the Israelites in the story. And so we kind of come back to the resolve of the prayer that we're going to pray a little later in the service. And we say... Give us this day our monthly bread? No, our daily bread. We just kind of keep coming back to that reserve. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so it happens daily. It also happen, It also 
happens in such a way that God makes us work for it. For God to become sweet to you, for his bread to come, come sweet to you, he makes you work for it. And I just think about it because God could have made it been even more efficient and just, um, you know, he could have just, why didn't he just put the manna right into their stomachs? You know, zap it in there and everyone goes, hey, I'm full. Thanks. How did yours taste? I don't know. I didn't really taste it. It's kind of there. Um, God doesn't work that way. Surprise, surprise. He could have. Why didn't he? Well, up to this point, the Israelites really had been passive participants in, in, the, in their own deliverance and in their new identity and in getting out of slavery to one and, and becoming servants of God over here. They've been passive up to this point, and at this point is when they become participants. And that's, that's really how God works. I think Philippians chapter 2 is... The end of that verse is actually fairly well known, but there's an interesting mystery to it. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Work out your fear and, or work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I mean, isn't, if you've come to City Life once, you know this is a place of God's grace, not our works, but it's right there. Yes, it's there, but notice it also says, For God is at work, for it is God who works. So who's working? Yes, God's working, you're working. Really what's going on is that God's method of of us um, growing in his leadership in our life is to employ us, to enlist us, and to involve us in such a way that as he is working his sweet word and leadership into our lives, it's sort of like you work something into the dough, his method of that is to involve us in the work as it spreads into more and more of our lives. So he, he, it's a daily thing. He puts us to work. And lastly, you are fed actually in community. And you can see um, in verse 16, which we didn't read, I won't go into it, but basically it gets into instructions of distribution of the bread. So it's kind of like, you know, it's a collective community thing and they kind of bring it all back and then they kind of lay it all out and measure it so that everybody gets the same amount. Everybody gets enough. And and basically there's a huge principle here that you're going to find God becomes sweet to you in community. As you take the risk and you enter in to sort of the authentic walking along with others, you can't uh, find God's word to be sweet on your own, in isolation. You can't. And you'll get some, you know, I'm not trying to make these blanket state, bigger blanket statements than I'm making, but it happens so much, so much more beautifully and God works so much more powerfully within community. When you take the risk, though, to dive in, there's this quote from the movie. I don't know if anybody, how many of you watched Goodwill Hunting when it came out, um, but at this crucial point where Sean, the therapist, is trying to get Will to uh, kind of open up in therapy because he just sort of closed off and he's not going there. This is, the, this is the key interaction that they have. Sean, the therapist, says, So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling and seen that. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus on your personal favorites. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. 
You're a tough kid, and I'd ask you about war. You'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visitor's hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. You're an orphan, right? You think, I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read, I read Oliver Twist. Does that encapsulate you? And he kind of gets to the point. He says, unless you want to talk about you, who you are, well, then I'm fascinated. Then I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, sport? You're terrified of what you might say. Well, it's your move. And I know that's about therapy, right? But it's true also about community. That in isolation, you're just going to feel like you're spinning your wheels. Dive in, risk, open up, find others who can walk the journey through the wilderness. You know, you might find others who have been there before. Or you might realize you need to give the gift of a wilderness perspective to those who are going to go through it next. So it happens daily. He makes us work for it, and we're fed in community. Let's go to God in prayer, asking for him to help us on this journey. Dear God, I pray that you would <clears throat> facilitate in our lives a f- openness and flexibility to your Holy Spirit, and that you would help us. If some of us are in the wilderness right now, or we're trying to walk alongside someone else who is, maybe they're not here and would never even come here, Um, just because of their story, but we're trying to figure out how we help them. Or maybe we're just trying to figure out, you know, life's good for me. This doesn't resonate, but I want to learn from it somehow. Would you help us to kind of solidify our perspective on the wilderness in such a way that we have deeper trust, um, that we need to look to you, your word, and your leadership, and that you can become sweet to us. Would you become sweet to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have a time of offering, and as the musical offering is going on, there's also some cans being passed around. And in the worship guide, you can find the update for our monthly offering goals and how that's going. Um, and uh, I just want to say, if you're if you're visiting, you know, sure, fill out that contact card, drop it in there. But this is not a moment of of pressure that we're trying to um, get you to participate into something that you're not yet ready to do. So um, if we don't locate the, uh, I think there might be an issue of locating uh, the cans. If we don't do it now, we'll pass it around later on in the service once we find them. So um, here's this prayer, though, just to frame kind of uh, what we're doing here in this offering. Blessed are you, God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have these gifts to share. Accept and use our offerings for your glory and for the service of your kingdom. Blessed be God forever. Amen.